Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Uh, Julie, when was the last time you saw a live rat? Ha ha ha. I saw a huge rat at the zoo once. Yeah, in, in an exhibit? No, just running across the path. And that's not surprising, right? Because the zoo has lots and lots of food at any animal's disposal. So I'm sure that rats hang out there quite a bit. Okay. Well, similarly, I, uh, I, last time I saw a live rat outside of the confines of a pet store uh, was when I was uh, taking the public transportation around here, MARTA, the mm-hmm. train, that is at times kind of a subway, and indeed uh, got to see a nice fat subway rat running around under the tracks, which for me is always kind of a treat because it, uh, you know, it brings to mind uh, more, you know, gothic ideals of, uh, of the underworld. Um, and at the same time, it's also, I can't help but think it's a little gross because obviously the, the rat is there because there's plenty of garbage to eat. Well, there's something very outlaw and charming about these rats, too, dwelling in a subterranean world, right? And we tend to think of them more in really negative terms, thinking about them as vectors of disease. But as we're going to explore today, uh, rats are one of the most successful species and rats, they're just like us, uh, that we have a lot in common with them. Indeed. Now, we don't want to completely discredit the whole disease vector thing, because uh, according to the CDC, they're, they're, these are just some of the key diseases transmitted by rodents. There's a, a hantavirus pulmonary syndrome, uh, hemorrhagic fever with renal syndrome, a loss of fever, a leptospirosis, lymphocytic Chronomeningitis, Omsk hemorrhage fever, plague, rat bite fever, salmonellis, salmonellosis, and several South American arena viruses. Well, you know, this is how I feel about being a rat. You probably want to have a heavy reputation like that, right? Because you're out there on the streets, the mean streets. You want a mean persona like, hey, I might accidentally give you some sort of plague. Yeah. <laughs> or, or not so accidentally, so don't mess with me. And when you start to think about rats in this way, their survival instincts, you can really look at them as more of just this sort of pestilence um, underground, but more as the uh, the largest collective holders of real estate in major metropolitan areas, specifically Manhattan, because we should really consider this rich life of the rat there, which arrived sometime in the 1800s. We're talking about ratus norvegicus. And it has made itself so ubiquitous that just its very presence is sort of one of those uh, defining features of New York City when you think about New York, right? And they have successfully lived off the detritus of humans. And you can follow droppings nearly anywhere if you want to, right? And you'll find a path between walls, nod between bricks, and then just knowing that there's this whole other species, this life thriving uh, beneath our feet or between our walls. And sometimes even coming up through our toilet bowl. Uh, There are accounts. I think about that in the middle of the night sometimes. And I have to admit, when I am in New York, if I don't see a rat, I, I feel a little let down. Like it's it's it should it's part of the experience, you know. So if there's not one appearing naturally, I kind of want to hire somebody to like just let a rat trained one run across the street in front of me. Um, now, there, when you get into the exact numbers of rats in Manhattan, and I bring this up because it was recently uh, in the news. Um, 
Past estimates have ranged from an extreme infestation of 28 million uh, rats to uh, other more conservative estimates of 8.4 million. Um, but uh, recently, there's a study that came out from uh, Jonathan Arbach, a Ph.D. candidate at Columbia University. And uh, he's crunched the numbers, and he thinks that it's less than that, probably more like 2 million. But basically, any way you shake it, we're talking about a lot of rats living in this great metropolis. Yeah, that's a decent-sized population. And it's really easy to start actually going the ratatouille route, too, yeah. and, and projecting um, your human qualities or our human qualities onto them. Um, but as we will explore later on, there really are a lot of parallels between rats and humans. Um, but one of the things that's often overlooked is that there's quite a bit of contribution from rats, albeit not voluntarily. That's right. We're getting out of the ratatouille area and getting into uh, more of the secret of NIM area here, right? Um, as it turns out, 95% of all lab animals are mice and rats, according to the Foundation for Biomedical Research. And that is that is quite a lot because you, you think of lab animals, right? Um, you, you know, you also tend to throw in chimps and you think of experiments on rabbits or what have you. But... Uh, or even things like E. coli and some of the jazzier experiments that we've discussed here in the past. But when you come back down to it, it's the rodents that are carrying uh, most of the load. And why is this? Well, a lot of it has to do with convenience, right? Rats are small in size. They're easily housed. You can easily maintain them in captivity, and they're fairly uh, adaptive to new surroundings. I mean, obviously, there are plenty of species out there that uh, that you cannot keep in captivity. They just do not survive. They just completely fail if you try to, to house them. The rat, however, they, one of its skills is adaptation. So, hey, it adapts well to this captive lifestyle. Also, rats reproduce like crazy, and they don't uh, live more than two or three years. So if you have a study and you need to look at several generations of a creature to see, uh, see how your study's panning out, you can do that in a short period of human time. You know, now there, you know, there are no E. coli. Um, heck, the, the E. coli long-term evolution experiment that we've discussed uh, here before has seen more than 50,000 generations pass in just 25 years. But rats and mice uh, boast other key advantages. They're also cheap to acquire. You can buy lab mice and rats in bulk from commercial suppliers, so there's no hanging around looking like a, a creepy person at the local pet store, you know, with your burlap sack. And then when it comes to actually handling them, uh, this is a pretty uh, uh, mild-tempered creature. You can reach into the cage. You can get them out. You can you can handle them. You don't need a you know an electric prod to deal with the lab rat. <laughs> right. They're highly portable, and uh, their genetic, biological, and behavior characteristics closely resemble those of humans, making them really ideal to study. So, as you mentioned, because they reproduce so quickly, you can tinker around with genetics. And within just a couple of generations, you begin you can begin to take some sort of hypothesis and then put it into study by tinkering with the genetics and seeing what the outcome is, which of course informs uh, what we're trying to do medically with humans. And when I say informing, I mean really the contributions to a ton of diseases and conditions that we have been studying through rats. And what exactly have they helped with? Well. According to uh, Life Sciences article, Why Do Medical Researchers Use Mice? Uh, they've assisted with the following, uh, standing in as human models. Hypertension, diabetes, cataracts, obesity, seizures, respiratory problems, deafness, 
Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, cancer, cystic fibrosis, HIV and AIDS, heart disease, muscular dystrophy, and spinal cord injuries. And in addition to all that, uh, we regularly turn to mice for varying studies that concern behavioral, uh, sensory, aging, nutrition, and genetic studies, as well as the treatment of drug addictions. Yeah, so that's quite a resume that, that rats and mice have. Now, Consider that rats were first used in the lab at the turn of the century uh, by researchers, I believe, in Chicago and at Clark University. So at first it was just the humble rodent maze that they would run through to try to give us some ideas about more, uh, the more behavioral aspects of rats. Now, fast forward to today, and they, they're actually occupying a far loftier space in studies. And one of the loftiest uh, than I could think of is something called the Human Brain Project. And this is something that neuroscientist Henry Markham has been toiling away at for years. And we've talked about it before, too. This idea that you could reverse engineer the human brain. And this is a very ambitious project to complete a or to build a complete model of a human brain. And we're talking from synapses to hemispheres and then simulate it on a supercomputer. That is incredibly complex and ambitious. So what do you do? Well, you have to start with the basics. And the basics in this case is the neocortex of a rat. And Markham has simulated the behavior of a million neuron portion of this rat neocortex. And this has given Markham a lot of new insight into everything from the expression of individual rat genes to the organizing principles of rat brains. And the team, uh, Mark and team has published some of that data in peer-reviewed journals. But they're also beginning to integrate it into this cohesive model so that they can simulate it onto an IBM Blue Gene supercomputer, which will all then um, lead to this human brain project. Now, if this human brain project is successful. We're talking about building a plug-and-play brain. Um, you could take it apart to figure out what the causes of brain disease are. You could rig it to robotics and develop a whole new range of intelligent technologies. Uh, you could strap on a pair of virtual reality glasses and experience a brain other than your own. Now, the big question here, a lot of naysayers say, can you? can this model scale? Can you go from a rat brain to a human brain? And can this be done to that sort of complex um, level of detail? We don't know yet. But if it's successful, the reason it is is because it began with rats. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to get into uh, how rats are essentially just like us. All right. We're back. Um you know, we've been discussing the way we use rats in uh, experiments in the past, how they're going to factor into our further explorations of the human mind and the human body in the future. And in doing this, it's it's already pretty obvious that you can't just look at this rat as uh, as a mere furry earthworm that we can just in, you just inject things into and see how it plays out in sort of a, a generic organism. There's a lot of there seems to be a lot more of a linkage between what it is to be a rat and what it is to be a human. That's right. And so that introduces us to these human-like things that we like to define ourselves by. I'm talking about this idea that we could exhibit regret or empathy 
or even metacognition, this idea that we could think about thinking. That seems like something that only primates can do, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but in fact, there are studies that will point you into the direction of rats being able to exhibit this as well. Indeed. For instance... Rats being able to feel regret. Uh, this one is, is really fascinating. This one uh, is from a study that came out in 2014, published in the journal Nature Neuroscience uh, from uh, it's a University of Minnesota study from Adam P. Steiner and A. David Reddish. Um, the key findings here are that rats who made a bad choice registered regret in the same part of the brain uh, that humans uh, are believed to show regret, the orbitofrontal cortex. And they also seem to look back on past regrets in the same way that humans do. Um, in other words, the rat is thinking about what it should have done. Now, the study itself has a lot to to uh, to line up with uh, with human dining. Uh, Julie, have you ever found yourself in a situation where there's a restaurant you really want to dine at, but you go there, it's too crowded? Yes, Robert, I have. And then what what do you do? I go to another one, sort of begrudgingly. Yes, exactly. And so this is kind of what they were setting out to do with uh, with the rats to in the rats. Uh, study this model of of having to fall back on a plan B, adjusting your 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 plans, and then how you think about past and future choices. The rats in this study were given the chance to feed on four flavors in four different feeding stations: banana, always a jazzy choice; cherry, also good; chocolate, everyone loves it; and unflavored, uh, which leaves a lot Ooh. to be desired. Now. Each rat is going to have its own, in this experiment, had its own preferences on, and its own patience level regarding how long they're going to wait for something they want to eat. You know, just like any of us as we go out to, to get that meal uh, on, say, a Friday date night or what have you. Um, so when the rats arrived at a station, a tone would let them know how long they would have to wait for their grub. And that could be one second wait or it could be a 45 second wait. And again, if you're only living up to three years, that 45 second wait is maybe a little more substantial. <laughs> The researchers found uh, that the rats decided to stay or go based on that tone, based on the perspective weight, the same way humans would with a, a crowded restaurant. You know, two-hour wait, screw that, I'm going to Denny's, and there I'm going to eat it fast and angry, and then I'm moving on. And it was the same with the rats. But much, li- and much like a human that goes to, to Denny's over the latest fusion dining sensation, the rats who skipped out on quality... Um, favored chow for something faster, and then showed regret. Uh, And then researchers observed the brain activity uh, via a little invasive tinkering and indicated that the rats were engaged in what they called mental time travel. So they're imagining the alternate reality of eating in the restaurant that it skipped. And that ability, of course, is core to so much of the human experience, right? The, The regretting the past, worrying over the future, the entire wheel of human suffering. Because uh, uh, as the, the rats quickly angerate their lackluster Plan B meals, they were already plotting the next better meal. Which, I mean, this is a very human thing, right? Like, how many times have you anger eaten at a place which you're like, ah, I really didn't want to do this. Yeah, or even if it's still good, you're kind of like, all right, well, this is good, but I really wanted to try that ramen, you know? Yeah, I mean, and the regret is, it feels like one of those really human things, so it's interesting to see it played out in this context. Now, another thing that um, has been a, a bit of a surprise here in the last five years is this idea that rats can exhibit empathy. And so the next study that we're going to talk about... Um, covers empathy, but it also covers uh, chocolate, as you mentioned before. Like, this turns out to be one of rat's favorite snacks. And, like, this is a very important thing in the world of rats, if you have access to chocolate. And this will come into play in a moment. 
So, 2011, neuroscientist Peggy Mason, she devised an experiment where two rat mates were housed together for a few weeks. And then she placed one into a transparent tube that could only be opened from the outside. Now, the other rat, the free rat, was pretty curious. It was kind of sniffing around. And perhaps it was even a little bit frightened because it didn't immediately open the door. There's this idea that it could be experiencing something called emotional contagion, this this sort of fear that um, in a group situation where you feel that other person's fear and it's very uncomfortable, right? So it's possible that that rat was kind of shying away at first. But once it kind of got this idea, oh, my friend is trapped in here or my cage mate's trapped in here, over and over again, they would see that this rat would release the other rat that was trapped in the container. Now, the researchers had variations on this experiment. In one case, they put a fake rat in the container, which I kind of like, come on, guys, you know, rats are pretty smart. They're going to realize that that's a fake rat. And of course, they did not try to release the fake rat. And then they had another version in which they presented a rat holding container um, with a rat in and another one, another rat holding container, which contained chocolate. So this is where the willpower comes in, because, again, here's this thing in front of you, this chocolate, the, your most prized possession of your tiny rat life, if you can access this. And what they found is that the rodents, the free ones, would actually go and free the the uh, cage mate, and then they would go and get the chocolate. And not only would they just, huh. they get the chocolate second as this altruistic act, but they would share it huh. with the cage mate. There's, there's many a human that would not do that, I feel. Exactly, right? And so this is very pro-social behavior. And there was a follow-up study in 2014, and the idea was, well, what happens if you put uh, like rats in with other rats? So like meaning all albino. And then you do a, a sort of variation on that, and you take, say, a black-hooded rat with an albino rat. Would they free each other even though they're of different strains? What they found is that when they had albino rats that were complete strangers and the free albino rat came across the stranger albino rat that was in the container, it would free it. Hmm. Okay. If they put, this is the short and dirty of this, okay, if they put the black hooded rat in a container and they were both strangers, the albino rat would not free it. However, if later on the albino rat was housed with the black hooded rat, it would free it. So it had to have some sort of relationship or environmental contact with it. And then they found out, too, that once the albino rat had the experience with a different strain, i.e. the, the black hooded rat, that it would then uh, release other strangers who happened to be black hooded rats. And the implications of that are really interesting because you see that play out in society, right? We see a stranger. We're, mm-hmm. we're not so certain about that person. We're not so trusting. We don't know if we want to help that person because they are apart from us, right? But once you experience that person as another, as part of your circle, or you relate with that, to that person, then you want to help that person, right? Yeah, it's like straight up uh, Enemy Mine with uh, Dennis Quaid and Louis Gossett Jr. It's the human and the alien 
and they hate each other and they're crash landed on the same planet. But then they, they, they learn, uh, that they get to know each other. They have respect for each other and suddenly they're looking after each other against a greater enemy. Yeah. And so what I think is interesting about that is that it kind of proves out this idea that the more diversity that you have or are exposed to, well, the more empathy that you can exhibit and the more connection that you have with your fellow rats or your fellow humans. And moreover, according to Ben Ami Bartel, who was one of the researchers on the 2014 project, he said, quote, we share the same neural structure with rats that we use for our own empathetic responses. Our brain structures are responding in the same way. They are um, shaped in the same way when it comes to those sort of responses that require us to be empathetic. Now, at this point, you might be saying, "All right, well, that's that's all well and good. They can display some level of of empathy, but how, what about what about higher thought? What about higher levels of human thought, such as um, metacognition? Uh, we're talking the ability to reflect on one's own mental processes, and this is this is key stuff to human experience, right? This is stuff that makes or can make us rational animals. It's it's about realizing, oh, I I I don't have enough in my head to tackle this problem. I need to do some homework. Or uh, in in loftier scenarios, it's you know the straight up sort of meditative Eckhart Tolle kind of a situation where you're stepping outside of your own thoughts and looking at them. Well. For rats, uh, we see this as well. A 2007 study by researchers at the University of Georgia, the researchers trained rats to press a lever when they heard a short burst of static, and another one when they heard a long burst of static. Push the correct one, rat, and you will get a food pellet. Push the wrong one, and you get nothing. Uh, it's, it's what we call a duration discrimination test. And, and there's an additional catch here. If the rats decline the test completely, they receive a smaller reward anyway, like a half pellet. Think of it as a, a consolation prize, you know? It's like a big moment on the game show where you can you can go for the big prize behind door number three or just take home the washing machine that you already won. Now, that probably sounds all pretty straightforward, right? But then the researchers start tinkering with the lengths of the static burst, making it harder for the rats to ace the test and reap the rewards. So the core findings here, when when the rats were uncertain about what they knew about the test and its parameters, they find themselves unsure, you know, how long is that burst and, and which lever am I supposed to, to pull? They just cut their losses. They go with the smaller reward. In other words, they admit that they don't know. They're thinking about thinking. Um, and they're, they realize their understanding of the situation isn't strong enough, and it's better not to play and take that consolation prize. You know what I like about this is that it's, first of all, the fact that those medium tones, mm-hmm. which were ambiguous, the, you know, like it's easy to get those short and long ones, right, right, for humans. But those ambiguous ones are hard for us as well. I mm-hmm. mean, it's not just rats. And I like that they that they are admitting to a certain degree, like, I'm not quite sure what my path is. But also there's this kind of like Vegas odds thing at work here. Like yeah. I feel like there's going to be a Ratatouille, the, the Vegas version that, the next that would be movie. pretty cool, Ratatouille, the sequel, Ratatouille Goes to Vegas. It would be good stuff. Now, have you ever seen a magazine called Us? I think it's called Us. Yes, I've seen it in um, in grocery stores. Yeah, it's kind of like the, uh, like the I don't want to say the downtrodden version of people, but maybe like the less glossy and journalistically competent version. Is this one that they put the screens over sometimes in grocery stores because the headlines are too sexy? 
I don't think they're too sexy. They're just really like very celebrity driven mm-hmm. to a certain degree. That's completely ridiculous. In fact, they have a section and I've seen this at my doctor's office and the section is celebrities. They're just like us. And it'll show like Britney Spears getting, you know, some Starbucks coffee or something like that. And it's so ridiculously funny. And cause it's, you know, yes, they're human. That's actually probably a good message for, um, for your checkout line reading or waiting room reading, because at least in the the, the checkout line, you do see those horrible headlines where where it's where they're just treating these celebrities like like animals on display. And yeah, it's good to remember they're human on some level. Yeah, it, th- and that's a lovely way to put it. That like animals on display, and so you kind of half expect when you're going through one of these things and you start thinking about rats to see this in the same light, like. Rats, they're just like us. They laugh. <laughs> and I'm sure you guys out there have heard about this before, but rats do laugh, and they, they can be tickled. Um, this was found out in the 90s by neuroscientist Jacques Bans- Panskep, P-A-N-K-S-E-P-P, and his colleagues that uh, begin to eavesdrop on frolicking rats. And they found out that when they were playing, or they were just about to play, they were anticipating, they emitted this unique 50 kilohertz chirp, and it was only during that time. They figured out this chirp was kind of like a laugh. And so uh, one thing led to another, as they do, and they found themselves in the lab tickling rodents in what they call somatosensory stimulation. And in fact, when they did this, they found that rats emitted more laughter when being tickled by people than during any other activity. Now, I have to say, that aspect of this kind of chills me, because have you ever been tickled against your will? Yes. It's terrible. It, it, it is. You, you feel like, it, it's like being assaulted in a funny way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like you're like, stop, and you're laughing, and it just feels like this grotesque moment. You can't stop laughing, and yet you don't want to be tickled, and so the signals aren't matching up. Yeah. Like, it's interesting to watch my son react to it, because he'll... You know, you, if you tickle him, it's like he, it's very much like he's laughing uncontrollably. He's under attack. And he's like, stop, stop, stop. And then you stop. And he says, do it again. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So Panskep and their colleagues, they describe their tickling method thusly. So keep that in mind. These these rats that are like, tickle me, don't tickle me, tickle me, don't tickle me. <laughs> they say, quote, the tickling was done with the right hand and consisted of rapid initial finger movements across the back with a focus on the neck followed by rapidly turning the animals over on their backs with vigorous tickling of their ventral surface, followed by release after a few seconds of stimulation. This was repeated throughout each tickling session. Even though the tickling was brisk and assertive, care was taken not to frighten the animals. So, yeah. I I love that language in describing the tickling of a rat, and it's sort of the the nice, sort of detached clinical language of a scientific study. It is, but I I would love to see another study of the the uh, research assistants tickling to see how it affected them. Yeah, you know, uh, did it? And then maybe a follow up study with Komodo dragons, just to just to prove, just to lose some toes, just to lose some toes. So here are a couple other findings from this study: rats housed by themselves sought out tickling by humans more than rats that shared their cages with other rats, which was interesting, right? This was their way of maybe compensating for a lack of social interaction. Uh, rats who enjoyed the tickling initiated play with the researchers, emitting more laughter and play biting the hand. And these are some of the same features that you see with rat on rat play. Mm-hmm. 
And rats that didn't like to be tickled tended to be anxious and neurotic, while laughter-prone rats were friendlier and handled stress better. And this is really the crux of this study, because it's not just about, hey, let's tickle some rats. It's more like, let's see how they're using this very pro-social behavior, laughter and tickling, to modulate the stresses of their life. And then let's look at rodents who are tickle adverse, because there are some, and try to bump this up against human mood disorders and figure out what's going on. And lo and behold, they, they found out, this is really interesting, something called neurogenesis, which is new nerve cell growth in the hippocampus. They found that those cat, those cats, those rats that were tickle adverse, well, they, when they were tickled, didn't have any surge in new uh, nerve cell growth in the neurogenesis. And those rats that did like to be tickled, well, they had a ton of neurogenesis. Hmm. And I thought this was particularly poignant because if you, you know, of course I'm projecting here, but if you look at depression or mood disorders in humans, you can see that when um, a person is racked with anxiety or depression, it really is paralyzing to the person. And then in this way, you see the same sort of thing playing out in the neural substrate of a rat. So there you have it, the laughing rat, the science of the laughing rat. Uh, Julie, have you ever, I don't know, fallen in love with a statue and then your love for that statue made that statue come alive into a, a living flesh being? Uh, well, not exactly a statue, but like a golem, and it was just once. Okay. All right. Well, you know, that's acceptable. You know, we have, in our youth, we all have to experiment with uh, the unliving uh, made flesh. Um, and the golem was going to come to life anyway. I just was just hurrying along the process. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's one of those cases where the, the, the Dear John letter that you write is actually on the golem's forehead yeah. as you change the the, uh, uh, the, the sigil. Uh, we're, of course, talking about... Um, uh, alluding to um, the uh, the Roman poet uh, Ovid's uh, Pygmalion uh, tale, right? Sculptor falls in love with a statue that he's created, and uh, woo, it comes to life. What does that have to do with rats? Well, it comes down to something we call the Pygmalion effect. Yeah, and in 1963, there was a psychologist, or there is a psychologist, who uh, began to really look at this unconscious experimenter bias, as he called it then. And Robert Rosenthal had been really working with humans on this because he had this hunch, right, this, that uh, experimenters were affecting the subjects that they were studying. And so he wanted to look a little bit further into this idea that you could unconsciously affect the outcome of someone's performance. Um, and now, by the way, this is also called the expectancy effect and the Rosenthal ex- uh, effect. And in order for him to really build up his research, he turned to rats initially. And in one of his early experiments, he tested the effects of the experimenter expectancy on maze running performance. And he had two groups of research students test rats, wrongly informing them either that the rats were specially bred to be, quote, maze dull uh-huh. or, quote, maze bright. Ah, uh, maze runners. Like in the uh, the young adult series and subsequent movies. Indeed. So they, they were either uh, dullards or quite clever, right? And this is the idea that these research students had when they were handling the rats. So in reality, of course, all the rats were standard lab rats, and they were randomly assigned to the dull group or the bright group. 
And the results show that the rats labeled as bright learn the mazes more quickly than those labeled as dull. And apparently the students had unconsciously influenced the performance of the rats, depending on what they had been told. So these unconscious uh, clues would play out in the way that they handle the rats. So nurturing and, and, and careful for those clever Hans rats, right? <laughs> um, or dismissive and more sort of brusque movements with them, with the ones that were considered dull. And that was sort of like this earth-shattering uh, idea that unconsciously you could be saying things or you could have physical cues that would affect the person's performance. Yeah, I mean, we're getting into the the power of stigma here, the uh, and and the power of privilege, and uh, and there are of course obvious uh, human ramifications here, and uh, and uh, Rosenthal was was uh, was was definitely interested in those. Uh, followed up uh, with the 1965 experiment, uh, in which uh, children were identified as growth spurters uh, in school. The growth spurters, not meaning that they're going to grow tremendously tall, but rather they were expected to make academic strides. And uh, the thing is that they did. They followed uh, their performance and they showed, yeah, the, the kids that were identified as growth spurters uh, definitely improved uh, academically, but it comes down to the same situation as the rats. The, they were just selected at random. There was no uh, weeding out of who had, uh, you know, what, what uh, necessary criteria to succeed. So um, the, the idea here is that... Um, is that you know they're they're in the classroom they're labeled as as special as growth spurters and so that uh, affects uh, you know the teacher student interaction it it also affects the the the, the students uh, expectations of self it gets into communication warmth of communication the depth of the teaching uh, better feedback resources uh, etc all because they went into it expecting thinking that this particular child uh, is going to achieve more than the one next to it. Yeah, and that's huge, right? Because everyone comes into the classroom with biases. Mm -hmm. There's no way to get around it. But if you're aware of it, then perhaps you can uh, change your behavior and and those kids can get a fair shake. Uh, Carol Dweck, who we've mentioned before, she's a psychologist and researcher at Stanford. She said, quote, you may be standing farther away from someone you have lower expectations for you may not be making as much eye contact. And it's not something you can put your finger on. We are not usually aware of how we are conveying our expectations to other people, but it's there. All right, so at this point in the podcast, we find ourselves in kind of a, a post-Secret of NIM viewing situation where, uh, you know, obviously these, uh, these, these lab rats and mice have contributed so much and will continue to contribute uh, to our medical research or understanding of, of what it is to be human and, and how we work. But at the same time, we see we see all of this uh, this science um, backing up the idea that they're they're more than just rats. They're a little more like us than perhaps we're ready for. And yet, according to an amendment made to the Animal Welfare Act in 2004, rats, including mice of the genus Muse, uh, bred for research in labs and birds, are not considered animals. Huh. And this is a kind of semantic distancing. It's a way for government agencies in the United States to get around issues concerning personhood, pain, and empathy when using these animals, um, particularly in these highly invasive experiments, not just maze running here. Yeah, like actually like putting wires into the brain and, 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 and worse things. Yeah, in, yeah. in actual studies on pain, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so... It, 
it's just interesting that this this is an animal that is not considered an animal, and yet um, you know recent research is really beginning to show us to what degree, in particular, empathy is available to this species, and not just this species, but other species. Yeah, I mean, to think that this animal in this cage in this lab is technically lab equipment, really, I yeah. mean, from, from, from a legal standpoint. Um, but you, to your point, yeah, we end up seeing the rat as more than mere vermin, more than mere disease vectors and handy biological test subjects. Um, what changes? We find ourselves uh, dealing with this uh, this new branch of ethology. Ethology is the, the science of animal behavior. Uh, this new branch is called cognitive ethology, and it's concerned with the influence of conscious awareness and, and intention on the behavior of an animal. So uh, a lot of the research stems from the work of zoologist Donald Griffin, but uh, but you see it's spreading out. Really, if you pay attention to science headlines coming down the, the coming down the pike, um, we regularly see uh, research uh, with not just mice, but a variety of animals, where we're we're really stopping and saying, well, what is human consciousness? What are the sort of the parameters we can tick out off on that outside of our our blind brain bias? And uh, and, and what can we identify in these other creatures because while you know we have plenty of informal accounts of rat consciousness uh, that have been around for a while doing no small part to pet owners and animal lovers uh, and and perhaps no small part uh, due to projection uh, you know projecting on them kind of having a pygmalion effect with the animal mm-hmm. to make it more human and more alive but the thing is now we're seeing neuroscientific backup for so many of those feelings uh, and again, not just with rats, but with a, a wild, wide variety of animals. Yeah, I was just thinking about our episode that we did on elephant empathy. And here's a case uh, where it's really apparent. And there's a lot of projecting, right? Because this is this gentle giant that we all know and love. And it's got that trunk. And the trunk is very expressive. Mm-hmm. And as we have learned from Dr. Franz de Waal, who's a biologist and primatologist, um, elephants... Are, are very perceptive and they get distressed when they see others in distress and they reach out to calm each other down. And it's uh, not uh, too dissimilar to a way that chimpanzees or humans embrace one another. And we see that played out in the animal world over and over again. So we've reached this understanding of empathy in other animals and yet there still seems to be this dividing line, this kind of human exceptionalism. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the basic question, are humans exceptional? Are we something other than animals? Are we some sort of highly evolved ascendant species above everything else? Or are we just a highly evolved rat, uh, essentially, torturing our kin to advance our own scientific understanding of the world? Like, I, in, in researching, uh, this episode, I, I kept thinking of, of, uh, of the, this fortress of consciousness, you know, this, uh, this, this fortress that humans have built. And for the longest, they were the only ones allowed to occupy the, uh, the inner protection mm-hmm. of that fortress. And then eventually we learned enough to say, all right, well, the great apes can come in. Okay. You, you guys have, have some level of, of, of consciousness and we'll admit that you can live in some part. Of and the there's fortress. no dispute how similar we are. So right. I guess we gotta let you in. Yeah, we right. gotta, gotta let you in. The, the science is on, on the table. And, and yet we've discussed in, in previous episodes, we end up with, uh, with data that emerges on other animals that we have to, at least some of us, have to let into the fortress, you know, from dolphins and elephants uh, to even something like the uh, the octopus, which is which has a a very different uh, 
brain than uh, our mammalian brain. But when you start looking at it, when you start taking yourself outside of the human uh, uh, bias and put it, put yourself in the octopus as much as possible, you have to start start questioning: Is this animal conscious too? So that brings us back to rats. Are they truly empathetic? Are they truly conscious on some level? And then if they are, what happens to animal testing? How do we, what do we do? I mean, we've already seen the, yeah. the whole uh, situation where with the legislation, we're almost preparing for that battle by going ahead and uh, and devaluing them to mere lab equipment. Yeah, well, some people would say, too, when it comes to empathy and rats, that it's just a heightened form of emotional contagion, right? Mm-hmm. That these rats are, they're just feeling so um, distraught over another rat's distress that they are trying to make it stop, that it's not necessarily empathy from an altruistic point of view. But Peggy Mason, one of the uh, lead researchers in those rat empathy studies, will say it takes a lot for a rat to downgrade its own fear mm-hmm. in that emotional contagion situation in order to actually go and free the other rat. So there's something more going on than just mere emotional contagion. And I, I really like this quote because uh, Peggy Mason, I think, hits it right on the hat. She says she's more than happy to consider herself a rat with a fancy neocortex. In other words, she there, there's the, the similarity is there. We just kind of have this nice, beautiful neocortex sitting atop our already ratness. Yeah. I mean, I, I think of it in terms of word processors. I end up writing a lot in Microsoft Word, has lots of bells and whistles, many of which I don't even use. It has all your spell check and what have you. But then there's also just Microsoft Text, which is just pretty basic. But is it fair to say that Word is a word processor and text is not a word processor when they both essentially do the same thing, except one is a little more complex than the other? Well, in one, right. So it's empathy in both scripts, right? One yeah. just one is just maybe we can talk about more, right? Because we have the facility to, in our own language, but who knows to say that rats aren't talking about empathy in their own language, uh, which is, I know, sort of crazy. But these are these are ideas circulating. Um, and the idea here, too, is that empathy for humans allows us to momentarily occupy the mind space of another. Mm-hmm. And the idea of that is that uh, when we can do this, we can help support one another. We can guess what's going on. We can make predictions. It is one of the cornerstones of a civilization cooperation, the ability to, um, you know, put some sort of pattern recognition to place. And to say that this is only available to primates is, you know, looking to be more and more erroneous of a line of logic. Ah, but what happens when those um, high-thinking, self-aware humans uh, inevitably bite the dust, uh, either due to their own uh, mismanagement of their resources, their misuse of their weapons, or just some cosmic calamity that comes crashing down from the sky. What happens to the, the meager ratatouille? What happens to the uh, the meager rat? Rats will take revenge. That's <laughs> right. So when the sixth mass extinction occurs, rats may just be the winners here. We're not saying this is fact. This is largely a thought experiment thought up by John Zalowski, a geologist at the University of Leicester in the United Kingdom. He studies Earth history and his colleagues and he were just kind of sitting around thinking, hey, what if we're at the edge of a mass extinction? What animal would be most likely to survive and repopulate the Earth? 
Yeah, and he contends it's the rat because as we discussed, they're survivors. They are, they, they have all the skills they need to survive and thrive in new environments. They pretty much colonize the entire world. They yeah. still stand toe to toe with humans on that, on that particular uh, accomplishment. Uh, so when the environment changes, when the world changes in a way that completely leaves humanity behind, these are going to be uh, the rats are going to be one of those species that can that can actually thrive in this vastly new world. And of course, there's going to there are going to be some additional mutations as well. That's right. Uh, they may be larger. That's the idea that Zalas Witz was uh, talking about here. He said the time frame of this purported rat takeover would be about three million to ten million years from now, and based on previous rates of repopulation after mass extinctions is thought that the rat would grow much larger in size. Um, and again, I, you know, again, this is a thought experiment, but it makes a lot of sense when you look at how wily they are and how they repopulate uh, or reproduce so quickly and how clever and social they are. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not that difficult to uh, imagine uh, a future in which... Uh, Intelligent mutated rats are are running the streets, and there are no humans around. Now, will they have mutated turtles in their midst as well? I don't know. I leave that for the scientists to decide. I think you are you excited by that notion. I am. I yeah. Because because uh, of course in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles you have Splinter, the intelligent rat. I yeah. Know, remember and uh, and of course that leads to turtles, and then from there it just gets uh, it's, it's crazy. But maybe uh, that comic and TV show is actually a glimpse into our future. Which just reminds us all again about that little blip on the radar of time that we all are. All right. On that count, uh, hey, if you want to check out more uh, episodes of this podcast, um, more blog posts, videos, links out to our social media accounts, you can do so by visiting stufftoblowyourmind.com. If you have thoughts about rats that you want to share with us or any other animals, really, uh, particularly concerning empathy, please send us your thoughts at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 